What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 17th. Today, why a federal watchdog is worried that Trump's D.C. hotel may violate the Constitution. And more Brexit troubles for Theresa May. Well, it starts with the fact that the Trump hotel is government property. This is David Farenthold, who covers the Trump Organization for The Post. So the Trump Hotel is housed in the old post office, this historic building in downtown D.C. that's owned by the federal government. Trump's organization bid for a lease to operate a hotel there long before he ran for office. Then the hotel was completed in September 2016, right before he won. So then they faced this conundrum. There's an item in the lease that says nobody who is a federal office holder may hold this lease to this federal office building. That'd be a conflict of interest. Trump won the presidency and the hotel opened just a couple months earlier. And then people said, well, what should we do? The part of the government that could have done something was the General Services Administration. Except... It did not seem at the time like a lot of thought went into the GSA's approval. Like they didn't really consider it before they said, yes, you can have it. It's like, it reminds me of that line from The Wire where they talk about like, you're caring when you weren't supposed to care. And it seemed like the bureaucrats who approved this decided that they didn't want to go above and beyond. They, you know, they didn't want to care about things they weren't supposed to care about. That changed this week when the GSA's inspector general released a report saying that the agency had improperly ignored constitutional concerns after Trump became president. First, because the lease was now held by a federal office holder. And also there's a more sort of broad clause in the lease that says this lease can't violate the law. And the law includes the Constitution. Particularly the part of the Constitution we care about in this instance is the emoluments clauses, which we've talked about before. One of the least used parts of the, con- of the Constitution that say basically presidents can't take payments from foreign governments and they can't take payments from individual states. So at the time, right after President Trump was elected, basically the government kind of looked at this and was like, eh, it's fine. Trump can keep leasing this hotel property. Yes, that's right. The General Services Administration, which oversees this building, had to decide, you know, is there a problem with Trump continuing to have this lease or Trump's, you know, the company? It's not him on the lease. It's the the company that he owns. Uh, And they decided, no, there's no problem. And so this report basically dug into like, well, how do they decide that? And it seems from this, the answer was, it wasn't like Trump leaned on them or anybody came and pressured them. These were just bureaucrats who decided, like, I'm not going to make this my problem. The report says that the 
bureaucrats who approved this should have gone back and really looked at the Constitution, decided if the emoluments clauses made it impossible for the president to own a hotel in a federal building, and they just didn't. They assumed that was somebody else's problem, somebody else was thinking about that, and the end, nobody was. So this report says that, that the people who should have been paying attention to whether or not this was a violation of the Constitution, that they didn't really pay attention to it. But does it say that anything has to happen now, that Trump has to give up the rights to his Trump Hotel property? No. Its recommendation is extremely bureaucratic. You know, we should clarify, do a review and clarify the language for future leases, but it doesn't call for anything to happen to Trump's current lease. So Trump you know, this does not affect the fact that the president owns that hotel. It will not change. How does the news about this report, like, fit into the bigger narrative of what you've been writing about for the last couple of years and Trump and conflicts of interest and the emolument clause? It basically shows, uh, as you said, what we've been learning over the last couple of years, that our government just had never contemplated a situation like that, that the president himself would own businesses, including one in a federal building, that would take in money from the same people that the president was dealing with as a representative of our government. That basically that the president himself could have a private business relationship with a com- company or a country or an interest group. At the same time, he was supposed to be the unbiased representative of us, the American people, with those same customers of his. Nobody had really contemplated that except maybe the founding fathers who had put it in the constitution. But every other president had stayed so far away from creating that kind of permanent conflict of interest, that the government didn't really have any mechanisms to deal with it. And we're now seeing what happens when there was no mechanism. In many cases, people just didn't know what to do and they didn't do anything. It's really interesting because I feel like when we talk about conflicts of interest, it feels very philosophical. But you've been reporting on a couple situations over the past couple months where like, you see why this could be a problem, right? That, for example, T-Mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Right after... President Trump was elected, a bunch of T-Mobile executives that were trying to, like, lobby the government for something ended up booking a bunch of rooms at the Trump Hotel. That's right. This is something we reported uh, that I think is the most direct case of somebody who has a need arise where they need something from Trump's government and immediately pays a bunch of money to Trump's business. And so what we found was we got some internal documents from the Trump Hotel, which showed the VIP arrivals list. So the people that they tell the Trump Hotel staff, here are the important muckety mucks who are checking in today. Be nice to these people. Call them by their first names, you know, let them drink out of the mini bar or whatever. And so last year, T-Mobile announces a merger with Sprint which is a huge deal for T-Mobile. It's something they've been wanting to do for years. It enables them to make a bunch of money, first of all, but also to increase their market share hugely in the U.S. cell phone market. That merger needs approval from the Department of Justice and the Federal Communications Commission. And that's not a rubber stamp. The Obama Obama administration twice shot down similar merger ideas from T-Mobile because they thought it was anti-competitive. It would reduce customers' options. So T-Mobile announces this thing that's going to need the Trump administration to sign off of it. The next day... Those VIP arrival lists show nine T-Mobile executives. And not this is not like the accounting department on a business trip. This is the top leaders of this giant company, including its CEO. They all check into the Trump Hotel. And it's not just that one time. They come back again and again and again. So they were here to talk to people in the government, but they also were like, we should make sure that we're spending a bunch of money on the nicest hotel rooms at the Trump Hotel. I can't speak to their motivation, only to the timing, which shows that, like, you know, they immediately after they announced this merger, now the future of their company depends on President Trump's administration. And then they become very loyal customers to Trump's hotel right the next day. I mean, that's that's what's so striking about this case. It's the next day they all check in. One interesting thing about T-Mobile was it's not just that they were neutral on Trump before. Their CEO had actually had a big Twitter feud with Trump 
but just a couple of years before where he was like, Donald Trump, your hotels are terrible. You are terrible. I'm checking out of this Trump hotel. So he had this sort of combative relationship with Trump. And then all of a sudden, he's a loyal customer right after he needs something. So is there any evidence to suggest that the Trump administration is leaning toward approving this merger because T-Mobile execs dropped a bunch of money at Trump's hotel? Well, the most important approvals it needs, it has not gotten yet. So the DOJ and the FCC are both haven't decided on it. The people expect the decision maybe in the second quarter of this year. So we don't know what they're going to decide. They could shoot it down the same way the Obama administration did. And even if they do approve it, you know, I don't think anybody's going to write in an approval document, you know, the DOJ approves this because, you know, you got 1,500 Trump card points on the Trump Hotel loyalty program, you know, and we give a special bonus for that. The danger here is there's two dangers. There's one that it creates an impression within the DOJ or the FCC among political appointees, among staffers who just, you know, want to do their job and not create hassle for themselves. There's a danger that it creates this, this impression for them. If I give the president's customer what they want, the president will be happy. My job is easier. Nobody has to tell them anything to communicate that. But if you understand that this company is a very loyal, very you know out and proud customer of Donald Trump, you as a bureaucrat will do better for yourself by approving what they want. The other danger is that the public starts to lose faith in this process. This is a process that's the approval of this merger is fundamentally about us, customers. What do we want? You know, our our rates are going to go up. Our options as customers are going to decrease because there's fewer people competing for our business. The DOJ and the FCC are supposed to be looking out for us. And if people get the sense that they're looking out for Donald Trump or Donald Trump's business instead of for us, it undermines faith in this whole bureaucratic process that we really need people to have faith in. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. David Farenthold covers the Trump Organization for The Post. It has been a dramatic week in the United Kingdom. The last few days have just been like crazy. The parliament rejected Theresa May's Brexit plan. It was a humiliating defeat. They they handed her head to her. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. And then the next day, they tried to kick her while she was down, and they had a no-confidence vote against her. The eyes to the right, 306. The nose to the left, 325. So the nose have it. The nose have it. That she survived. So Theresa May has kept her job, and she's still in power. William Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. And all of this turmoil is not a surprise, because last time that I spoke to Bill, he'd said there was no way that Theresa May's plan was going to pass. So now they're right back where they started, facing an impending Brexit deadline with no plan in place. Right now, the prime minister is taking meetings with opposition uh, parties and minor party leaders at 10 Downing Street to find, as she says, you know, a deal that they could support. Why do they hate it so much? 
God, they hated it for a bunch of different reasons, depending on what their ideology is. It didn't completely free Britain from the EU orbit. It kept it kind of half in and half out in this sort of twilight sleep of like still being in the European Union, but not really being in it. So a lot of people didn't like that. And other people, of course, in the parliament just don't like Brexit at all and are looking for ways to get out. And of course, the Labour Party to be honest, just doesn't like the Conservative Party or Theresa May, so they end up usually voting against uh, things that the Tories want. But the problem is, is that they're facing a hard deadline, right? That, like, as it stands now, they have to leave the European Union by March 29th. So is there any chance that that deadline might change? Yes, I think there's a big chance that deadline will change because it doesn't look like they're going to make it. So they're supposed to leave by March 29th with a deal. And if they don't have a deal, all these scary bad things might happen. So there's a lot of pressure on the prime minister to seek delay. And European leaders have said, yeah, they would accommodate the Brits and give some delay. They don't want a chaotic departure. But they keep reminding London, you know, you guys need to come up with a plan. We have to have some sense that this is going somewhere. The idea that I keep coming back to over and over again is that this just seems so hard and it feels like there's no actual path toward a solution here. What is your sense of like what the public feels about this and if there is still somewhat of the same appetite that they had two years ago for leaving? I think the public is pretty sick of it. It gets very wearying. There were some polls out that said that 56% of those surveyed want to remain in the European Union. So they do not want Brexit against 44% that would like to leave. It's a bit of a muddy message, but the thinking is that the Remain side has grown a couple of points and the side that wants to leave has shrunk by a couple of points. One pollster pointed out a funny detail. He said, well, since the Brexit vote in June 2016, a number of people have died and a number of 16-year-olds have become 18. Hmm. So time marches on. And what are the options moving forward for Britain? The options for moving forward for Britain are to stage a second referendum, to extend the date that they leave, to have a softer Brexit, or to leave Europe with no deal, to crash out, not have a transition period or not have any sort of a trade agreements in place. So what do we expect to happen on Monday? On Monday, uh, the prime minister is supposed to brief parliament on her quote-unquote plan B. What is her plan B? We don't know. We think it's going to be some fudge to what her existing Brexit plan is now. It'll be something like, yes, I'm going to go to Brussels and seek more assurances and a little bit more compromise to make the people in parliament happy and support my deal. It's not an up or down thing. She'll give, I think, sort of just a general kind of vague plan uh, of where she's at, and they'll go from there. I don't think that's the day where it gets shot down. So if Theresa May has had two of these very devastating votes against her in the last week. How can she survive this? She survives in part because nobody wants her job. So there aren't Tory challengers emerging. They want this mess over with a clean slate before they shove her out onto an iceberg and have her float away. I mean, they, they want this done first. So there's no, no challenger in her own party that really wants this. 
So she just keeps going on and on. And Jeremy Corbyn used a great expression yesterday. He called it a zombie government, hmm. uh, which sort of raises the specter of, of an undead Theresa May just repeating over and over again, Brexit means Brexit and eating the brains of her party members. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it feels like the same process is happening over and over and over and over again. I I think they made a movie about this. I won't uh, I won't <laughs> say for sure. It's something about groundhogs. But yeah, it very much had that feel, which is another reason why it's just driving Brits nuts. Thank you so much for walking us through this. Anytime. Happy to do it. William Booth is the Post's London bureau chief. And now, one more thing. The history of the very first border wall. It comes to us from Mike Rosenwald, host of Retropod, a daily Washington Post podcast that rediscovers forgotten moments from history. Long before the perceived threat was asylum seekers from Central America It was German spies and Mexican revolutionaries, prostitutes and polygamists, Chinese immigrants, and even sick cattle. When Texas joined the Union in 1845, it led to a war between the United States and Mexico that ended with American troops occupying Mexico City. At gunpoint, Mexico signed away what is now Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado for $15 million. Five years later, in 1853, the United States bought another 30,000 square miles for $10 million so that it could build a transcontinental railroad. In 1882, the United States and Mexico formed a joint commission to resurvey, remap, and remark the border. In 1909, Congress passed the act to prohibit the importation and use of opium for other than medicinal purposes, effectively launching the business of drug smuggling on the border, according to St. John, the historian who wrote a book about the border. That same year, the first federally built fence went up in Baja to prevent American cattle from contracting Texas fever a disease spread by ticks that had been nearly eradicated in the United States but persisted in Mexico. Around the same time, customs officials began preventing the entry of certain people into the United States. Immigrants, specifically those who were convicts or prostitutes, and then later so-called lunatics, and others thought to be undesirable. Sophisticated smuggling networks soon developed along the border, including doctors specializing in removing signs of disease. And so here we are now, almost two centuries later, still arguing about it all. That was Mike Rosenwald, host of the podcast Retropod. The story was first reported by Michael Miller for The Washington Post. Check out Retropod at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the stories in today's show by going to WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports and join in on the conversation about these stories online using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Post Reports is sponsored by D. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.